The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 37 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murdermyfam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Thank you. And now on with the show. Laura Bible grew up within a large, loving family in the town of Welch, Oklahoma, just eight miles south of the Kansas state line. This is a small, rural town with a population of around 600 people a population that stayed around the same size for decades. The kind of place where everyone knows each other. Laura was an outgoing and energetic young girl. She sometimes played the part of tomboy and sometimes was a cheerleader. But most of all, she was a country girl at heart who loved her family and friends. One of Laura's best friends who she grew up with was Ashley Freeman. The girls were different in many ways. While Laura was outgoing and bubbly, Ashley was a bit more quiet and laid back. But still, the teenage girls were fast friends and hung out together frequently. Both girls were around the same age, with Laura being about eight months older. 1999 had been a rough year for Ashley Freeman. Her older brother Shane had died in a shootout with police earlier in the year, and Ashley struggled with the loss. As Ashley's 16th birthday approached in December, she needed her friend Laura more than ever. On Wednesday, December 29th, Ashley celebrated her 16th birthday, and she invited Laura to sleep over in the mobile home that Ashley shared with her parents, Danny and Kathy Freeman. It was supposed to be a fun night for the teenage girls. Instead, it turned into a nightmare, not only for them, but for the entire community. Early the next morning, on Thursday, December 30th, just before 5.30 a.m., a passerby noticed that the Freeman's mobile home was on fire and called the authorities. Firefighters arrived on scene to battle the fire just after 5.30. The fire was a bad one, and the home had been severely burned. As firefighters made their way around what was left of the home, they made a horrifying discovery they found the charred, lifeless body of Kathy Freeman on the floor in her bedroom. There were no signs of her husband, Danny, nor was there any indication that Ashley and Laura had perished in the fire. As investigators looked closer, they realized that it wasn't fire or smoke that had killed Kathy Freeman, but rather a gunshot to the head. Further investigation revealed that the fire that had gutted the mobile home had been deliberately set sometime between midnight and 5 a.m. Suddenly, investigators found themselves at a crime scene. The question was, where were Danny Freeman, Ashley, and Laura? 
Rumors quickly circulated that perhaps Danny had killed his wife and taken the girls hostage, holding them at some off-site location. Laura's family was devastated by the news, and her parents, Lorene and Jay Bible, raced to what was left of the Freeman home to see what was happening. When they arrived, they were horrified to see their daughter's car sitting outside the Freeman's burned-out home, the keys still in the ignition. But sadly, there was no sign of Laura herself. Police finished searching the smoking debris and didn't find any other clues or bodies. And after their search, they left the scene unprotected. That day was pure hell for the Bible family. But as tough as things were, they took a proactive approach letting people know what had happened. The Bibles wanted to look for any clues that might help them find their daughter. And since police hadn't closed it off, Jay and Lorene decided to head to the Freeman property one more time the next day on December 31st to look around, hoping that some kind of clue might reveal itself. As they walked through the rubble, they found what they knew was unmistakably a body. Based on what they saw, they were sure that it was Danny Freeman's body. Shocked that investigators had somehow missed Danny's body, they alerted police who immediately came out. To the Bibles, this seemed like a huge misstep by police in the search for their daughter and Ashley. It was determined that like Kathy Freeman, Danny Freeman had also been shot in the head. Police now had a double homicide on their hands and two missing 16-year-old girls. The question then became, were Laura and Ashley taken against their will by whoever had killed the Freemans? Or could they themselves have had something to do with the murders before fleeing? To the Bible family, any speculation of their daughter being involved in killing the Freemans was ridiculous. And there wasn't a doubt in their minds that Laura was in danger, and they knew that they needed to find her quickly. But searches for the two 16-year-olds were fruitless, and there were no signs of either one of them. Before long, the case began to cool off. Rumors began to circulate around town about what might have happened and who might have done something so horrible. Some people went so far as to suggest that the police may have been involved in killing the Freemans and abducting Ashley and Laura. There had been a lot of tension and bad blood between the Freeman family and the police following the shooting death of Shane Freeman, a shooting which was ruled to be a justified shooting by police acting in self-defense. Attention also shifted to the Freemans themselves, in particular towards Danny Freeman, who was alleged to have been involved in drug dealing and other illegal activities. Due to these alleged illegal activities, the attack on the Freemans might have been the result of, or tied to, some of these activities. Perhaps Laura and Ashley were collateral damage. Laura's family strongly believes that she was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Who murdered Danny and Kathy Freeman before abducting Ashley and Laura went unanswered for years. Over the years, TV shows like America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries featured Laura's and Ashley's case on episodes of their shows. But despite additional recognition for the case and some new tips, the coverage didn't lead to any arrest. Along the way, at least one convicted killer boasted that he was responsible for the murders and abductions, but later recanted. It wasn't until April of 2018 when an arrest finally came. 66-year-old Ronnie James Busick was taken into custody and charged with four counts of murder for the murders of Ashley Freeman and her parents Danny and Kathy, as well as Laura Bible. It was also reported that two other men, Warren Phillips Welch and David Pennington, who were both deceased by then, had also been involved in the murders and abductions. An insurance card belonging to Welch's girlfriend had been discovered at the crime scene. When police questioned the woman, she told them that Welch had used her car, possibly dropping the insurance card during the attack at the Freeman's home. It's alleged that after the attack, these three men told multiple people that they had committed the crimes and had abducted Laura and Ashley. 
It's also alleged that these men showed different witnesses Polaroid photos of Laura and Ashley bound on a bed. The witnesses claimed that the trio admitted to raping the girls before murdering them and disposing of their bodies in a mine shaft. The details surrounding the arrest were devastating for the Bible and Freeman families. But some of the details laid out after the arrest were not new to them. Some of these details had made their way around the rumor mill. It remains to be seen what will happen at a trial for Ronnie Busick, and what, if any, new details emerge. For now, the Bible family just wants Laura's remains. They want to know where she is so they can bring her home. This mystery is far from wrapped up, however. At the time this episode is being released, there's a four-part series about the case running on HLN called Hell in the Heartland, What Happened to Ashley and Laura. Stay tuned towards the end of this episode for a special interview with Sarah Kayleen, who's one of the stars of the show. She's a criminal behaviorist and a friend of mine, and she joined me to discuss the case and the show. But before we get to that, I was also joined by Laura Bible's cousin, Lisa, who runs a Facebook page, Find Laura Bible. She sat down with me to discuss how this case has affected the Bible family and about the almost 20-year journey to find Laura and bring her home. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Lisa, and thanks for joining me today to discuss Laura's case with us. Thank you for having me. You're Laura's first cousin? Yes, I am. Were you guys close growing up? We were. Um, I spent a lot of time at her house. Our entire family lived in a very close proximity of each other. Um, and my parents divorced when I was young. So I kind of shuffled back and forth between her house and my grandparents' house. And and uh, we were very close. Uh, there were uh, only five of uh, granddaughters out of uh, 16. And so we were kind of outnumbered. I was the oldest, and then Melissa was next, and then Laura was right after her. And the three of us were really tight, um, kind of the three musketeers is what we just sort of called ourselves. So we were really more like sisters than cousins. Um, but, yes, we we were real close. And, and what kind of stuff did you guys like to do when you were hanging out and having fun? Oh, gosh. Well, we were country girls, so lots of time um, playing in the dirt and playing in the garden. And uh, some of our favorite things to do, you know, when we were little was uh, Grandma's house was Grand Central Station. So everybody was always at Grandma's um, almost on a daily basis because we all lived nearby. And so we loved to um, fix our hair. That was our favorite thing to do. Grandma had a stool that was tall and she had big double mirrors in uh, one of the rooms in the dining room and so that was kind of our little play area and we would do hair and makeup and and play in there and then um we loved to play in the hay barn i i don't know why but the hay barn was always a fun place to go play and uh you know run all around the countryside that's kind of what we did so just tip typical stuff that you would do with family and and pass the time and stay out of trouble Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and what kind of person uh, was Laura? She was um, the cutest, bubbliest little girl you would ever know. And that followed over even into her teen years. She, I don't ever remember her being sad about anything. She just was a happy kid and everything was funny and everything was a joke. And um, just bouncy. She was just a bouncy kid. And whatever we were doing, even though she was a little bit younger than us, boy, she was right behind us trying her best to do whatever we were doing. And uh, whatever, I I was a huge Reba McIntyre fan, always have been. And so, boy, she really kind of stuck right after that with Love and Reba. And uh, one of my favorite memories of her when we, we would vacation every summer together in Colorado and we would camp for uh, for a while up in the mountains and she took her boombox and climbs up on the side of a mountain overseeing the camp that we stayed at 
and she started playing Reba as loud as she could and singing at the top of her lungs. And I'm telling you, the whole valley could hear that child belting out some good Reba over on the mountainside. So she wasn't shy, <laughs> like she was pretty outgoing? No, absolutely. She was not shy at all. She was uh, the life of the party. And, uh, yeah, she was always very entertaining. And and at that time, was she close with Ashley? Did you know Ashley well? I did not know Ashley very well. I knew she was Laura's friend. And she Ashley had been neighbors um, of Jay and Lorene and, and uh, Laura and Brad whenever – they were younger. And so I knew who she was, but I, I didn't ever really know Ashley all that well. But I guess her and Laura became pretty, pretty tight. Yep. They became pretty tight and that was her, that was her school best friend. And I know she spent a lot of time um, with her at school and school activities and, uh, and at home as well. And uh, I know Ashley moved school districts and started going to Welch, but that didn't really seem to affect their friendship all that much. They still continued to, to run together like they always had. And there was no signs of trouble that it wasn't a case where somebody was uh, threatening the girls or uh, no, any oh, no, signs of anything no. like that. No, nothing like that. I mean, all, this really came as a shock to us. I mean, it's just one of those for for me, for our family, it was just a case of Laura was at the wrong place at the at the wrong time. But as far as any trouble, no, you, I mean we would have just never guessed anything like this would have ever happened. If you can take us back to that that horrible day in December of nineteen ninety nine, how did you personally learn what had happened, and how did you take that news? Well, um. The morning of the fire, I actually, um, not knowing that it was happened, I got up and went to Tulsa to do some after Christmas shopping. And that was in a time that we didn't really have cell phones. So I was gone all day. And when I got back home that late afternoon, there was a note that was taped to my front door that said, please don't go in your house please come across the street to my house. And that was left by uh, my best friend who happened to live across the street from me. I was, had just been married a few years. I was 22, um, you know, just getting life started. And so this notes on the door and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Um, but okay. So I did not go in the house. I went over, she was afraid that somebody had left messages on my answering machine. And so I, Went over to her house and she said, I need you to sit down. I've got something I need to tell you. And I'm like, okay. And, and she said, um, there's been a fire at the Freeman's house and Laura was there and they don't know where she is. She's missing. And I just kind of chuckled and I said, that's not very funny. And, uh, she said, this is not a joke. I'm being serious. And I said, no, you're not being serious. What do you mean she's not there? They don't know where she is. What do you mean? I don't understand. And she said, I need you to, I need you to think about this. You know, I need you to understand what I'm telling you. There was a fire at the Freeman's and the girls are both gone. They don't know where they are. And at that point, I just remember saying, I have to go to my grandma's um, and picking up the phone and calling and saying, you know, calling my grandma saying what's going on and I'm on my way and and so I uh, and I lived in Miami which was about about 30 minutes from my grandma's house but I I probably made it there in 20 minutes so it sounds like it was initially a case of shock for you when you found out that news definite shock and denial I just kept saying no you know she's there she has to be there and uh, somewhere, she's somewhere, We she, she's here, she can't be gone. So it was very much denial for me. And then after that, I mean, things were just kind of a a blur. And, and then, of course, you know, the next morning, I guess by that evening, I, I knew then that they had found Kathy and that she had been shot. Um, but at that point in time, there was some rumors going around that Danny had taken the girls and he had them held up in a campsite. So um, 
that's kind of the direction it was beginning to go. And it was the next morning, you know, before we found out otherwise. And how, how were Laura's parents handling this? Uh, I mean, as a parent myself, I can only imagine they were beside themselves, uh, just worried and, and wondering what was going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I shock and denial really, I think for them, but then at the same time, um, my uncle Jay is, um, he's more the emotional one and, but he was very strong and, you know, trying to deal with the emotions of I've got to find my daughter. And, um, my aunt is very much, um, a little bulldog and she was not going to take my kid isn't here, you know, for an answer and we're going to figure out where she is. And she just went into, um, we've got to do what we've got to do mode. And I, I mean, it's very fortunate that that's the kind of person she is as a mother myself now of a daughter who is soon to be 15. Um, I don't know that I could do that. Even living with this for the last 20 years, I'm not sure that I could be as strong as, as she was at the time. Yeah. And you mentioned her being strong and, and they actually got, involved right away and sort of looking through what had happened. And they're the ones that found Ashley's father's body in that burned out home. Um, I can only imagine they must've been horrified to, to find that and realize it's a body and, and maybe wondering if that could, could have even been their daughter at that point. Um, well, they knew, they knew it was Danny, you know, I mean, it was pretty apparent that it was a male, um, um, for, for other reasons I won't go into, but they didn't know, you know, that it was Danny. And so then I think there really got to be some concern of maybe the girls really are here and they've just been missed. Um, and at that point, I mean, really and truly my uncle Jay did say when law enforcement said, okay, we're going to need you to move back so we can take this back over again. He honestly said, no way. You know, I was in your back pocket yesterday. Today, I'm going to be in your front pocket. You guys are going to do this our way. And I mean, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, piece by piece, everything came out of that fire. There was uh, so many volunteers, which was amazing to me um, that everybody showed up and, and lights and, all, you know, all this equipment and and, uh, but 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, when it was done, we knew the girls were not there. And did that sort of take on a new direction at that point once they realized that the girls were gone, but Ashley's parents were dead? Uh, yes, it really did. Um, and then it was, you know, uh, who, who could have done this? And we've got to get the girls' names and faces out there. And uh, my aunt made a flyer, and we went and got copies. And we took, we were driving and dropping off boxes of flyers for people to pass out everywhere. Um, and, of course, then there was the rumors right off the bat. I remember her and I being in Walmart and overhearing some people on the next aisle saying, I bet those two girls are the ones that shot those parents and those girls have taken off somewhere and, you know, all these rumors about the girls. And that was shocking to me that people would even think that first of all, but then I had to think people don't know the girls. Um, and like I said, I didn't know Ashley that well, but I mean, I knew enough about Ashley to think that that was not something she was capable of, but I absolutely knew that was not anything that Laura was capable of. Um, so hearing those rumors in the stores and stuff were kind of hard, but, uh, but we knew we had to get the girls' faces out there and we had to start looking because at that point we knew that obviously nobody else was going to do that. Uh, so that's what we did. And were police going down that same avenue too, thinking, hey, maybe the girls did this, or is that something that they dismissed early on? Um, it was dismissed fairly early on, but of course it was an avenue that they did have to consider. After, after they sort of ruled that out and said, okay, we, we think something happened to them. Were there any other rumors or theories going around of, of what, had, what had happened at that point or any of the time 
that passed afterwards over the years? Um, oh gosh, so many different rumors. I mean, we heard rumors of mafia. We heard rumors of drugs. Of course, you know, lots of people saw that the police were involved and this was a police cover up. Um, just, you could just about name it and the rumors have been said over the years. And eventually the, the case sort of went cold, it seemed, and your fa- family is faced with the unimaginable, I would assume, because uh, they don't know what happened and they don't have answers and, you know, they don't know if Laura's al- alive or dead. How hard was it for your family to go so long with no answers and not knowing what had happened? Well, I think even though it did kind of go cold, um, as a family, we didn't ever stop that search. We never stopped looking. And we didn't have social media as to play a role like it does now. So during that time that it seemed cold, um, it really wasn't uh, too cold. I mean, it wasn't as active as it is now, but we were still getting, you know, tips and we were still following up and, and I mean, even a few different times resorting to, to, um, you know, listening to these random mediums that would call and say, Hey, you know, I know where your kid is. And, and so we would even go that route because I mean, at some, at that point, it's like, you'll, you'll pretty much try anything to figure out, you know, what's going on. So we were always continuing to work even when it seemed like we weren't. So you, you were literally leaving no stone unturned, trying to figure out what had happened and and taking a chance, looking at any possibility. Yeah, absolutely. We were constantly, you know, doing, doing anything we could. Did police update you along the way just to say, hey, we have, you know, we think this happened or that happened and, and keep you guys aware of what was going on? Um, I'll say when asked. I'm not going to say that they often made phone calls and said, hey, here's what we're doing or here's what we're at, you know, where we're at. But I know that if, if Laureen would call them and say, you know, hey, have you what's been going on? Have you done anything? Have you heard anything? They'd give her an update. But, um, but I think it was more when they were asked, they would answer, but they didn't volunteer much. Now, sometimes I I talk to people and they're very happy with the way that the police handled the case. Is that the case in in this case or were there issues that uh, your family had with the way the police handled it? Um, definitely issues with the way it was handled. Uh, it was, a train wreck from the first minute really that any of this even began. And we've tried to really not focus on what wasn't done and focus on using our efforts to find the girls. Um, Of course, the Freeman family feels differently. They have always felt like this was police involvement and a cover up and, and our family has not felt that way. We really lean more towards the fact that this was, a drug deal gone bad. Um, we feel like that Danny probably owed some money to someone and they, he didn't pay. So they came and did what they wanted to do. So we don't see eye to eye on that. And, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we do agree that what needs to happen is the girls need to be found. So as far as the police, their death, they definitely did everything wrong and very little right. And that's been tough. And do you think anything that they may have done wrong hindered maybe finding out the truth of all these years? I don't know how it couldn't have. Um, I mean, honestly, the crime scene was not preserved like it should have been. They didn't do anything right. Um, I mean, they released the entire scene and, and gave it to the Freeman family within eight hours of showing up on the scene. And when you've got, you know, a woman that you've already found taken out, that's been shot, it's going to take a little longer than eight hours to process a scene on that, let alone the fact that there's a husband that they 
had missed his body. He was there, but at the time they thought was gone and two missing teenagers. It should take more than eight hours to process that. And they were like, here you go. You can have it. We're done here. So I don't think that they did anything to, you know, to try to make it to where anything was preserved, where anything could be found uh, as far as clues to lead us in any direction. And starting out an investigation and missing a body in in a fire seems uh, like a bad omen for what's to come. Yes, it is a it's a pretty bad deal. And I guess fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, my husband is a police officer, so I'm very familiar with um, you know kind of how things go. And and so to have something so incredibly botched uh, like this. And law enforcement to look so ridiculous has been a little bit hard for me because I know that my husband is a great police officer and and his the staff that he works with would have never done anything like this was done. So even though I'm, you know, a big supporter of of law enforcement, it just really is tough, you know, dealing with the craziness that we dealt with with this. So you have to balance supporting law enforcement, but also pointing out when, when they've done something that, that may have hurt the case. Yes. Yes, definitely. So over the years, I know there's been different things, different, you mentioned some of the things that you did, you know, consulting with different people, um, trying different things. I know Unsolved Mysteries did this case. Uh, do you remember what year that was that they did an episode on it? Oh, gosh. Um, it was early 2000s. I don't remember what year for sure that was. I mean, America's Most Wanted, we did that pretty early on. That was the first one we had done. But John Walsh had came out here um, within the first week or so of all of this happening. He flew out here and, and met with my aunt and uncle. And so, you know, he gave them a lot of good advice. And uh, so his show was, was the first one that was done. So you did get some some media attention early on, it seems. Yes, we did. And and that media attention has continued, you know, at least sporadically over the years. I know right now you've got a big HLN special on on the case. Tell us a little bit about that and and what kind of uh, help that's that's been for you. Uh, okay, yeah, that's. Uh... That's been a really incredible opportunity for us. Uh, Jax Miller had contacted us about writing a book, and that's kind of where this began. She came out and met with our family and was in discussions about that. And then, you know, she kind of thought this is something that's a little bit, a little bit crazier than I thought it was, and this is something that we could maybe go a different direction with. And uh, so she went back and started kind of presenting this to some different people that she worked with. And then long story short, um, you know, CNN and HLN started putting this together and it's really uh, been eye opening for the world because I feel like even though we've done these other shows in the past and they were really great, we didn't maybe have the opportunities to advertise those as well. They weren't put out there as well. Um, so maybe didn't get as far as this one. The publicity has been astronomical on it and it's been such a good opportunity. And I will say HLN has, has just really done it well. Um, what we have seen so far, we've been very pleased with and, um, we've had a lot of feedback from it. We're already getting, uh, some tips. I had some yesterday, um, we've had some just based off of the commercials that people have seen coming in. So it's, uh, it's definitely kept the Facebook page that I run hopping the last uh, the last week or so for sure. And what's your Facebook page again? It's Find Laura Bible. And hopefully, people that want to learn more uh, will reach out to you there, or at least follow the page, yes. and maybe share it on social media. And and that's what these shows are great for: is they generate tips and uh, interest in the case, and people that might know something to hopefully come forward and, and hopefully that's the case for your family. Yes, I hope so. And I recently um, got us on Instagram and Twitter as well. I'm not as great at using those. I'm learning, 
but we are on the same it's on our bible and, and anyone can reach us through uh those avenues as well and, and let's talk a little bit about the arrest there you know it's almost 20 years without any arrest then all of a sudden in late 2018 there's a a man named ronnie busick that's arrested and it's also reported that two other men warren welch and david pennington who were dead at the time may have been involved were these names that your family ever heard of and and what do you think about these arrest this arrest Uh, they were names that we had heard before yes so they they did not come as a surprise to us um and, you know, I don't know, we're, we're waiting. He's been sitting in jail since the end of April last year. Um, supposedly, they're running competency tests and things of that nature. But, you know, here we are, uh, what, 14 months later, and we're still waiting for those hands to turn. And it will go to court again on June 14th. I don't know what's going to happen if they'll continue us again or if we'll go, you know, go on a little farther. But having the arrest is, has, uh, it's been good. But at the same time, you know, when the hands aren't turning and we don't know what's going on and we still have, we're not any closer to finding the girls, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, it's given us a resolution. And I know a lot of people have said, oh, I thought this case is solved. I mean, you guys got your man. It's over now. Well, it's not over now. Yes, there's a man in jail, but that's really all we have. And that doesn't bring back the girls, obviously, or tell you where they are, what happened to them. And that's obviously something I think your family probably would want to know, uh, even if it's, you know, 20 years later, even if it's the worst kind of news. Um, uh, and and that brings up if if there's a court uh, hearing and uh, trial and everything, then your family has to go through that. So uh, to get to the the truth, you may have to go through some difficult times. Um, are is your family prepared to to deal with a, a trial if it comes to that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I don't think at this point they could tell us anything that we have not heard through rumors. Um, and, you know, one thing about having this page and running this tip line and people calling in, you would probably be really surprised the kind of tips that people call in. And sometimes I just think, why would anybody say these things to a family just because they're looking for five minutes of fame? But it does happen. Um, and I won't even begin to tell you some of the stories that we've heard, but I can promise you that there's nothing that they could throw in us in, at us in a courtroom that we haven't heard and probably heard worse. So it's it's not been always a, a pleasant journey getting here with some of the stuff you've heard. No, it absolutely has not been. Well, hopefully whatever happens next, whatever the next phase is, your family can get the answers that you've been waiting for for so long. I hope so. We're ready for it to end. We're ready to bring the girls home and be able to have a resting place for them and a place that we, we can go to their graves and and know that that's where they are. Not that we'll give you closure. I don't think there's any such thing as closure in, in this kind of case, but hopefully that would give you some kind of peace just knowing you have them to, to, to go to and, and visit and mourn and, uh, be able to deal with that part of, of the aftermath. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's one thing that we definitely want. And and you're not slowing down. You're not just stopping with the HLN series. You're actually, this, this episode is going to air, uh, the first weekend of June, and you're going to be in CrimeCon in New Orleans. Tell us a little bit about that and what you're going to be doing there. Um, honestly, I don't know. They haven't told me what I'm doing for sure. Um, <laughs> we'll find out when we get there. But I do know that we've been asked to speak on a panel, and, and we will be doing that at, at CrimeCon. We went out to New York City to the true crime event that they had out there, and um, we did not speak on that panel. We were guests in the audience 
And uh, But that was good for us. I mean, that was the first time that we got to see the 10-minute clip that HLN uh, released before the series came out. And we met a lot of people. Um, and I guess really for me, that was the first time that I realized how the world was going to see this case and the, the shock, I guess, of everything that has happened to us because we've lived it for 20 years. So it's not shocking to me anymore, but to listen to that audience, watch that first few minutes and them gasp and for them to be, you know, just so furious over how everything was handled. Um, that was shocking because I just, I just didn't realize that the world was, was going to see something that we, we've lived for 20 years, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, it is what it is for sure. And it kind of gave me a different perspective on how everybody's, you know, going to see this case. And, and does it give you, uh, a, a good feeling or a proud feeling to know that so many people care about this case and want to know what happened to the girls? You know, it really does. Um, and people have been so very kind over the years and I tend to be um, a reader and I, I'll click on things to read and, and, you know, sometimes you don't want to read what people have said. And it's been very, very, very rare that I will read somebody, you know, say something that is inappropriate or off color for the, I would say 99% of the time, all I ever read is people, you know, sending their love and praying for our family and being in support of our family. And so it's just amazing to think that, and we're really, we're getting that from all over the world at this point. Um, through our Facebook page, we hear from people in other countries all the time. So this is really uh, reaching worldwide, not just in, in the area where these crimes happen, but across the country and across the world. Yes, correct. It is. Wow. And well, hopefully that does lead to some answers and you getting justice and, and finding out the truth and hopefully somehow bringing the girls home and, and putting them in the rest. We hope that's, that's what we're praying for every day. And do you know offhand what the tip line number is? If somebody has information out there and they want to call uh, in information in, um, any information can be called in, of course, to the OSBI, and I do not have their number handy. But if somebody wants to call directly, um, they can call them and talk to Lori Bible. She will talk to anybody that will call her phone. They can leave a message, and she'll call back. Um, and that phone number is 918-244-3625. And, of course, they can reach out on the Facebook page. And that is ran solely by myself and Laureen. There's no nobody else uh, that runs that page. We'll be sure to put the notes, uh, the Facebook group in the notes so people can find it. And, and hopefully okay. reach out to you guys and, and hopefully give you more tips and information. Hopefully, you know, we can do a follow-up at some point and maybe uh, down the road we're talking about what happened and, and how you were able to get some resolution at the end of this. Yes, definitely. I hope so. Hey, Sarah, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks. It's good to talk to you too, more. Thanks so much for having me. So I know you've been really involved and really passionate about Laura's and Ashley's case. How is it that you became involved in working on the case and became part of this great HLN show about it, Hell in the Heartland, what happened to Ashley and Laura? Well, um, gosh, just over three and a half years ago now, um, Jeff Miller, who was a friend of mine, I'd, I did some consultant work on her fiction books. So, you know, she would, she would send me a message and say, hey, you know, I've got this scene, what gun would be used here? Or like, what would the charge be in this case? Something like that. And I would kind of help her. Um, with her crime fiction to kind of keep the police stuff um, up to speed. So she reached out uh, in 2016, very, very beginning or, or late 2015 and said, I'd like to shift gears into true crime. And what I'd like to do is find an unsolved case. And then maybe you and I work on it together and see if we can come up with some answers. And then she was going to write a book sort of about that process as, as her um, venture into true crime. 
so I was I was in from the beginning. It's whatever case we do, that sounds great. And then we we fished around. We both kind of did some searches on on different cold cases. And she was the one who had had seen that this one was still active. I guess she remembered it from when she was younger, and did a little research on it. And around the time we were looking for a case, there had been a pretty significant development. There was a you know a search at a possible suspect's former property and stuff. So it was in the news again. And you know, she sent me some stuff on it. I did a little more digging and, and we saw right from the beginning that it had the potential to be really interesting for a true crime audience because there were just so many twists and so many kind of shocking things right out of the gate. And, and it just went from there. She reached out first to Laura Bible's mom, Lorene Bible, and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to, to write a book on your daughter's case. I can't promise you answers, but I can promise some exposure. And we just, we just went from there. And seeing the two of you in the first episode of the show, it really seems like you make a great team talking about the case and presenting it. What was that experience like for you working together to tell the story on, on a television program? It was really interesting. I mean, it was certainly new to both of us. Um, obviously, her background in writing and, and my background in law enforcement, it didn't seem like a natural um, <laughs> transition into television. But we we both approached the case from very different points. You know, obviously, she's sort of examining it as a storytelling, from a storytelling perspective, and I'm looking at it, you know, very procedurally. And so those two things together, we sort of joke that together we kind of make one full investigator because we've got all these different tools that we, we bring together to, to put into the toolbox. And it wasn't just teaming up with Jax Miller to, to help tell the story. You're actually meeting with the family members. Did that add any pressure for you to or urgency to cover the case and do it in the right way and, and try and present it uh, the best you could? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, from the get-go, I feel like I, I personally wouldn't be involved if the family's blessing was not there. Um, I, I think that these families, any of these families that have lost somebody like this, they've been through enough. And if the, if what they're saying is please don't, you know, blast this all over the world, it would never even occur to me to, to do so. Um, so yes, of course, having their involvement is, is first and foremost, but it, it does add a layer of pressure, um, because you want, you want to serve the story well and, you know, this now is three and a half years and you grow really close to these people. Um, or at least I feel like I, I've grown close to them. And I know that Jack feels the same way. You know, I mean, we, we share pictures of our, our kids and, and their, you know, other grandkids in the family and we follow each other's lives in ways that have nothing to do with the case now, you know, so the responsibility of making sure that the story is told in such a way that honors the victims and honors the survivors um, and, and pleases them and also hopefully helps bring some new information. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, but I, I think it's worth it. And episode one of Helen Heartland aired on Sunday, June 2nd. And for people that missed it, I'm sure they can find that episode on demand or online, but new episodes come out every Sunday night at 9 PM Eastern. I know the next episode is out Sunday, June 9th, the day after this interview will actually air. How many episodes? Oh, okay. How many episodes in all will there be, and what can we expect to see in the upcoming episodes? There will be four episodes total, so it's a four-part series. Um, the you know the next episode is going to go into a little bit uh, for people who hopefully saw the first episode. It sort of ended with the explanation that there was some bad blood between the Freeman family and the Craig County Sheriff's Department. So episode two is going to um, go into that in greater detail as to why so many people in the community feel that there was some, you know, possibly some police involvement or cover up um, in the in the Freeman's death, and then unfortunately as a as a side effect, the um, the disappearance of the girls. So that will be episode two. It's, it's going to concentrate a lot on on Shane's death at the hands of the the Craig County Sheriff's Department, and you know subsequent fights between everybody. Um, and then episode three will cover. Um, some of the suspects that have come up over the years, because there have been a number of really 
solid and intriguing suspects over the years and, and one will, will be really glaring and then, oh, maybe it wasn't that person and then another one looks really, really good and then, you know, you run up against brick walls there. Um, and then the final episode, I don't want to say too much, but it's titled The Arrest. That's out in the public sphere, so I won't I won't say anything more than that. So you're really, it sounds like in these episodes, you're really pulling back some of those layers and, and uh, really exploring the this case in, in depth. That's the idea. I mean, I know that Jackson and I both felt that even more episodes could have been devoted um, and, and there would have been ample material. I, I feel like four episodes kind of scratches the surface, um, but I think it does a pretty good job of scratching the surface. I think we really get... It, at least a more in-depth view of the case than anybody's had before. Cause this case has been covered on, you know, on some podcasts and a couple of um, sort of one-offs. Like I think there was an unsolved mysteries and, and um, uh, discovery ID did, did, you know, like little 20 minute segments on it. So I think we certainly are the first ones to really dive in and show people why this case is still so complex and so much a part of the community 20 years on. Well, it's, it's definitely great work you're doing and the show looks great so far. And uh, I'm, Thank looking, you. I'm looking forward to seeing you at CrimeCon. And um, speaking Likewise. of CrimeCon, crime you're going to be doing a little bit of something there related to this case. What do you plan to be doing there? And, and what are people going to see when, when they watch you there? We actually are really excited about that. So um, if your listeners are going to be at CrimeCon, we're doing a panel on Sunday morning at 1045. And the panel will, uh, Jax and I will be there, but Laureen Bible and Lisa Bible will also be there on the panel. Um, and Joey Jackson from HLN will be moderating. Um, and I think it's going to be a really, really powerful experience for anybody who attends because you'll get to hear Lisa and Laureen, who are the ones, quite frankly, who have kept this case going for 20 years. Um, you'll get to hear them. You get to ask them questions. And, you know, Jax and I are, are excited to be mouthpieces and to kind of amplify this story. But it is Lisa and Laureen's story. So um, I'm super excited to be sharing the stage with them and allowing the audience and, and the, you know, the followers of this case to to get to speak to them and hear what they have to say about it all. And hopefully everybody at CrimeCon checks that panel out. I know, I know it'll be good. And, and the show is out now. Again, it's Hell in the Heartland. Um, it's on HLN, Sundays at 9 p.m. And I look forward to the next episode and, and seeing what we find out about this case. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you um, kind of exploring it a bit with us. Well, I appreciate coming on, Sarah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.